Hello, and welcome to episode 94 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We are here today with Delegate Kathleen DeMay of District 15 in Montgomery County, Maryland. Kathleen is also Vice Chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Maryland House of Delegates. Kathleen, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. The first thing I'd like to ask Mm -hmm. you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Um, I think perhaps the thing I'm most... Well, there are a couple things, but one of the things I'm most proud of is what we did in the House of Delegates and the Senate last year and passed what's called the Justice Reinvestment Act, which is designed to reduce the level of incarceration in Maryland. Um, And it's sort of a national movement, but by reducing sentences and concentrating more on treatment rather than incarceration. Mm -hmm. To be honest, it's a win-win for the state because we save money because we're not incarcerating as many people. Mm -hmm. But with the money we save, and that's why it's called justice reinvestment, we take the money we save from the shorter sentences and, um, you know, better process Mm -hmm. and reinvest it in reentry programs, alcohol treatment, drug treatment, um, and make sure that, you know, people can get back out into society as productive members. So is the purpose of the criminal justice system in Maryland uh, to create more productive citizens in society and to temporarily remove non-productive and potentially harmful citizens? Is that how would you describe And particularly with the Justice Reinvestment Act, we really concentrated on non-violent Crimes and some that were drug related. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of war on drugs didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because we need to look at drug abuse and alcohol abuse as a health issue and not necessarily just as you know, were selling drugs and so we're going to lock you up forever. I mean, one of the things that Maryland had, and it wasn't just Maryland, across the country, mm-hmm. if you were dealing drugs, yeah. then we had what were called mandatory minimums mm-hmm. so that the judges had no discretion. It was, you know, a mandatory minimum sentence of 15 years for if you were caught selling drugs, um, even for the very first time. Have we always had mandatory minimums? We have had them probably since the 70s. Why were they introduced in the 70s? Part of this was the war in the late 60s. This was the war on drugs. It's like, we, you know, it's a scourge on society. We have to, you know, get the drugs off the street. So if you're dealing, we're going to lock you up for a long time. And that didn't work. You lock them up and there's still drug use. A, there's still drug use, and B, many times the individuals that were selling were really selling because they had a habit of their own, and as a result, that's the way they were making the money to be able to buy the drugs to feed their own habit. Mm -hmm. So to break the cycle, we really have to treat it as a health problem and not necessarily... I'm not saying that if you break the law and you sell drugs that there is not some consequence, Mm -hmm. but a 15-year mandatory minimum isn't the way to handle it. It's... You know, and giving the judge the discretion who has before him or her, mm-hmm. you know, the information on that person's background. Mm-hmm. You know, what other, have there been other crimes? And, you know, is the person employed? How long have they been able to hold a job? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, if we have a system that, and that's sort of what drug, what we call drug courts do now, mm-hmm. but they're limited. But you'll have one judge that will have a series of individuals with, with um, substance abuse problems. Mm-hmm. And if you're accepted to the drug court, then you appear in court, you know, I think it's, you know, often once a month, sometimes once a week, Mm -hmm. and you, you know, have to report to the court what you've been doing. You've been attending AA or 
NA as the case may be, you have been working. Um, you know, your probation officer comes to sort of say, yes, they've been checking in with me. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, with the idea of we want them to be rehabilitated and be able to get out of drugs and into a successful job and, you know, be successful in society. Is there any evidence anywhere in the country of this sort of program actually succeeding in obtaining its objectives and giving taxpayers a return on their investment? There is, because the Justice Reinvestment Act is actually it's a program that comes out of the um, U.S. Justice Department. Mm-hmm. Um, they do it in conjunction with the Pew Charitable Trust. Mm-hmm. And the, what is the reason why there's such bipartisan support is all of the changes that we made in the criminal justice system to, to you know, lengths of sentences and, you know, some crimes we made more of a civil citation instead of a criminal violation. All of it is data and evidence-based mm-hmm. because Pew comes in initially mm-hmm. and actually looks at who are we incarcerating, for how long, for what crimes, from what jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And then with that data, mm-hmm. we were then able to draft the bill that was passed um, and make the changes that we made. Plus, Pew also has the evidence of what's happened in other states. Mm-hmm. We were the 14th state to do this. Mm-hmm. Texas, of all states, was the first. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that they were their legislature was facing funding the um, building, needed to pass a bill with funding for two new prisons. Hmm. And they were like, we just can't keep going down this road. It's too expensive. Way too expensive. Especially if they're cutting taxes in Texas, and how are you going to pay for it? That's right. So the Justice Department had just started this initiative, and this was back in 2009, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And Texas didn't build those two prisons. Um, And they do have a pretty robust pretrial system, as well as robust sort of reentry process and drug treatment. And again, the importance, and we are going to do that in Maryland, Mm because our bill does that, is to be able to sort of capture the savings Mm -hmm. and put it into a separate account Mm -hmm. so that then, in fact, people can apply for grants. Counties can apply for grants because they want to improve their um, substance abuse program or their alcohol abuse program or do a reentry program or do a work release program. Um, So, you know, that's the idea. And it's worked, like I said, in 13 other states with really good Really good results. So would it be fair to say that this um, bill can almost be dissected into two main parts? Mm -hmm. One, um, reducing recidivism, and Mm -hmm. two, preventing incarceration in the first place? Yes. And how do you quantify the costs and the returns? Clearly, Mm -hmm. you're an elected official. Mm -hmm. It's not enough merely to to think, oh, this is something that's good. Mm -hmm. You also have to sell this idea To the public, first of all, does your constituency in District 15 care about this? Mm-hmm. Are they even aware that this mm-hmm. happened? Um, and how do you ch- sell them and tell them, look, this is, regardless of whether you mm-hmm. care about these individuals, right. this is helping your pocketbook? Right. And there was, we've done a lot of um, PR about it. Mm-hmm. And I do think that my constituents care. And I've certainly talked about it in the, the letters that I send out and mm-hmm. I've responded to inquiries about it. Um, it's a somewhat of a long process, and in fact, it was just yesterday that one of the provisions is that there would be what's called a justice reinvestment, what are we called, oversight board, mm-hmm. um, and that was one of the provisions of the bill, and the appointments were just finalized yesterday, mm-hmm. and so that board is going to be the entity that reviews 
you know, the data that comes from the, our Department of Corrections to be able to make sure that things are being implemented. Mm -hmm. The three branches of government worked on it together. It was, you know, the executive, the judiciary, and, and the legislature worked together on and when getting was this, this passed? done. In 2016. So 2016. And could you remind our listeners mm -hmm. the party affiliation of the House, the Senate, and the executive branch? Um, the House and the Senate are both majority Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, the executive branch at the moment is um, a, is the, the governor is a Republican. Mm -hmm. um, and the judiciary, obviously, party technically doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, you know, so it was, it was a good effort, and it's one that we've been nibbling around the edges on for a couple of years. And again, it's bipartisan because you'll, it, Congress is doing some of the same kind of work, but mm -hmm. it's when you're looking at saving tax dollars, mm -hmm. you know, everybody can sort of agree to that. Mm -hmm. and, if, and that's the important thing is having the data and the evidence to be able to say it does work. Now, you're a Democrat, is that correct? I am. And uh, would you say the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, or neither party is branded as being fiscally responsible and concerned about giving taxpayers a good return on their dollar? I actually think both parties probably can say that they are. Um, but who, why, if you're a Democrat, mm -hmm. what I'm getting at here is you're a Democrat. You're right. talking about a piece of legislation mm -hmm. that you seem to have worked quite hard on and believe in quite strongly. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you believe in being a responsible fiscal mm -hmm. steward. Absolutely. And you're a Democrat mm -hmm. at the same time. Why do you suppose a Democratic Party doesn't embrace that sort of message? Mm -hmm. Why do they give that ground mm -hmm. to the opposition? Why do, don't Democrats tell taxpayers mm -hmm. that they respect their tax dollars? Mm -hmm. Well, if we're not doing it, we certainly should. I do think messaging from the Democratic Party sometimes isn't as effective. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have short sound bites. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say in a short sound bite that I'm a steward of your tax dollars. But I'm also trying to protect those in need and mm -hmm. have the safety net programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what we will see um, in the, you know, we see it sometimes in the state. And I think you'll see, you know, certainly see it, unfortunately, in the, with the newest administration at the federal level. Mm -hmm. So it, the philosophy is not so, the difference in philosophy is not so much mm -hmm. that we both, both parties don't believe that, you know, we should both be, all be steward, good stewards of the tax dollars. Mm -hmm. I think the difference in philosophy mm -hmm. is that the Republican Party seems to think that private industry will pick up the slack that the government is not providing mm -hmm. and that there's too much government and that we don't need the government. Mm -hmm. I think the difference is the Democrats aren't convinced that private industry will pick up the slack for those that really need help mm -hmm. and that, you know, government serves a purpose. I also think that we understand better that there is a need for the government to be able to fund transportation, whether it be roads or transit, mm -hmm. you know, that we have, you know, that we have a better sense of the importance of funding education and that government funding of education is, you know, important because that's really the equalizer. So um, you have a sense of public goods I and a desire right. to invest in those. That's right. And it's not that my Republican colleagues don't believe in public good and don't want to do the right thing. We just have a difference of opinion on how to get it done. So let's talk a little bit about where you are as a representative. You do mm -hmm. you represent um, District 15. 16, could, you, could you tell me a little bit about your district, your constituency, mm -hmm. and why you ran to represent that particular district? 
So my district, I think, is one of the most interesting in Montgomery County. Now, others may disagree, but my district really starts in Potomac, Mm -hmm. and it goes all the way up to the Frederick County line. Mm -hmm. It's primarily west of 270, Mm -hmm. though we kind of cross over and pick up um, a bit of Clarksburg. For our listeners, 270 is a federal interstate Mm -hmm. in Maryland. And my district, I mean, Potomac is considered the very wealthy part of um, Maryland, mm-hmm. if not Montgomery, certainly of Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. And yet I also represent a large farm district because I have Poolsville and Dickerson and Boyd's um, and a large part of the ag- agricultural reserve. Mm-hmm. I have some pretty high populated areas when you look at pieces of Germantown mm-hmm. um, or the new Clarksburg. Mm-hmm. And I also have a little piece of Rockville, not actually city of Rockville, but addresses of rock in, that are considered Rockville. Mm-hmm. So it's very diverse, mm-hmm. and it's really a more conservative district, to be honest, than um, what some of the other districts in Montgomery County are you know, considered. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have probably also always been a little more fiscally conservative anyway, huh. um, but certainly on social policy, you know, I don't think anybody would doubt my credentials as a Democrat from a social policy perspective. So are you from District 15? Is that where you were born and raised? I wasn't. I was um, raised in Laurel, Maryland, which is in Prince George's County. Okay. Um, But always had a connection to Montgomery County. My father was uh, a teacher in the Montgomery County school system, eventually a principal. Um, And in fact, when he retired a long time ago in 1988, he was principal of Seneca Valley High School, which is... I think it's now in my district. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But I, I, I think now it is is my district. Um, so how is it that you came to run for delegate in, in my government? Now, you are an attorney. Mm-hmm. There's, Of course, we're in a part-time legislature, so mm-hmm. you have another career in addition Correct. to politics. Mm-hmm. How is it that you chose to... Uh, well, first, how do you balance those those mm-hmm. uh, different careers, and how is it that you decided? Well, you know, being attorney is all is well and good, but I'd like to additionally have a second concurrent mm-hmm. career. It, I actually wanted to run for the House of Delegates um, since I was a senior in high school huh. when I was a page in the Maryland House of Delegates. Interesting. Um, and so I got the bug and mm-hmm. thought if at some point my career allowed, and at that point I didn't even know what the career would be, mm-hmm. but if my career allowed, I would like to run. So I have a, I'm fortunate that I have a very successful practice. Um, And when I, you know, have done a lot of things with the Bar Association and have had lots of offices in the Bar Association, and a few years before I ran for office, decided, you know, I really wanted to get involved in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And so I was a precinct chair in District 15 for, you know, two years. And in 2002, there were two open seats Hmm. in District 15. So it was one of those... Well, why not try? Yeah. Um, and really kind of figured, I didn't have a clue how to run for office, and sort of figured, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Really wasn't convinced that I would win, but why not try? And, and lo and behold. Lo and behold, I was successful. Um, so I've been in office since 2002. So what is it that convinced, uh, why, why were you elected? What convinced mm-hmm. voters to cast their lot with you? Um, it was a one of those years where it was kind of a democratic wave, mm-hmm. which was so that helped. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of there was a big move in District 15 to sort of take back District 15 because at the time that um, I was running, mm-hmm. the state senator was a Republican, two of the state delegates were Republican, hmm. and only one of the delegates of the three of us were, um, 
was a Democrat, and it was actually Mark Shriver, hmm. who at that time decided that he wanted to try Congress, and he ran in a primary against Chris Van Hollen. Hmm. Um, and Chris won that primary, but Mark couldn't keep both offices. Um, so that's one of the Republicans in the delegate seat moved and didn't run. Uh-huh. And so between Mark Shriver's seat and that one. But there was a big push to make it Democratic. Uh-huh. I... Um, Assume that some of what resonated was, you know, I did talk about education. Mm-hmm. Uh, talked, you know, and it was amazing to me when I knocked on doors. Mm-hmm. You know, the little things that make a difference. It was that knew my father. I mean, whether they were a student of my father's, hmm. whether they were a parent of a student of one of my, you know, when my father was in the county, mm-hmm. um, whether they worked with my father, hmm. I was amazed at the number of people that would ask, "Are you related to Dick Dumay?" Hmm. Um, so there's that. I think the other thing that helped, there was a contested judicial election in Montgomery County that year. Hmm. So um, lawyers were very involved. Hmm. Um, and again, I have a, you know, I've been working with the Bar Association for a long time. It's an issue that contested election, judicial elections are something the Bar Association is very interested in. So there was, you know, we had a lot of lawyers out at polling places. So there's a lot of turnout and also a lot of volunteers with law- yeah. attorneys helping one of their own. That's correct. And so you say that education mm-hmm. um, and law seem mm-hmm. to be the primary themes mm-hmm. of your political correct. career. So uh, you spoke a little bit about your legal interests, at mm-hmm. least at one piece of legislation, right. and you're the vice chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what have you, have you been doing, advancing, what have you been doing for Montgomery County's uh, public education system, or Maryland's public education system? Um, one, I always, I'm not on a budget committee. Right. And as, you know, others may have indicated, in, at least in the House of Delegates, we really do rely on the committee's work. I mean, there's 141 members of the House of Delegates. We can't all be, you know, involved in absolutely every piece of legislation. And just to interject Mm -hmm. for our listeners so we Mm -hmm. understand context here, in Maryland, unlike many other states, Mm -hmm. delegates are assigned to one and only one standing committee. So if you're on the Judiciary Committee, Mm -hmm. you are therefore not on the Appropriations Committee, which is the Budget Committee. That is correct. Now, certainly when it comes to budget issues Mm -hmm. that affect Montgomery County, Mm -hmm. I think every member of the Montgomery County delegation is you know, aware of how it's going to affect us, making sure that when you're dividing up the school construction dollars, that, mm-hmm. you know, Montgomery County gets its fair share. Mm-hmm. When it's a question of, you know, the funding formulas for um, education, which are, generally speaking, wealth-based, making sure that our, that the formula adequately and correctly identifies um, what our wealth-based is. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, people sort of forget that we have more kids on free and reduced lunch than any other jurisdiction in Maryland. You know, there is this, and when you that's speak of what a we formula, fight. Yeah. Just so mm-hmm. our our sure. listeners know, you're basically saying, how does money get allocated correct. around the state? That is correct. And it's on a per pupil basis, taking into account other factors. That is exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we want to be sure that Montgomery County, the formula that Montgomery County, Montgomery County gets subjected to, right, is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we all, you know, pay attention to that. Um, you know, things when it comes to funding, um, for instance, for um, the Montgomery College, um, universities at Shady Grove, mm-hmm. you know, those are the sorts of things that, you know, again, from a Montgomery County delegate perspective, as a delegation, we actually watch and make sure that there aren't sort of, you know, allocations that there's more to one county or another. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, we consider ourselves to be the economic engine of the state, and it's important that we be able to have an educated workforce. So I do remember there was a point in time um, in budget negotiations towards the end of session. Mm, it wasn't this term, so it was before 2014. Mm-hmm. But Brian Feldman and I were both in the House. He's now Brian next, Feldman is a... Now he's my state senator. He was in the House of Delta. We were elected at the same time. as mm-hmm. We were the two that got the open seats in 2002. Okay. Um, but, you know, there was a sort of effort, somewhat by the Appropriations Committee, to take away some funding for a new building, the science building that's actually almost complete at the moment mm-hmm. on the Mo- Rockville Montgomery County campus. Mm-hmm. So the Montgomery County um, col- or the Montgomery College representatives contacted us. Yeah, and you know Brian and I went to the speaker. Um, Brian and I were both in leadership at that point, and you know made our pitch. And in fairness to the speaker, he was the first to say, "I just heard this." And we're not doing this, and Mm -hmm. we'll get it fixed. Mm -hmm. But truly, Brian and I were doing an amendment to the budget, literally on the floor. Both of us on the phone to each other. Which is unusual? Not, yeah, that's pretty normal. Um, (laughs) You know, that we're trying to, you know what, but, you know, again, once you, you know, you're in leadership and the speaker is sort of looking out for Montgomery County because he knows that Brian and I have helped on other things. You know, he wasn't going to let this building sort of be put off for another year. And what does it mean to be in leadership? What is that? You're a vice chair. Why does that matter? Um, because what the speaker has a leadership team mm-hmm. um, and sort of the closer internal leadership team, sort of like if you were looking at a board, mm-hmm. it's the executive committee. It's the speaker and the six committee chairs and the majority leader. And usually the person who's the Democratic caucus chair. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of the executive board. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you go down sort of to the next level. And that's where the parliamentarian, which is what Brian was at the time, vice chairs, um, deputy whips, and, you know, it was sort of another level. What does it mean to be a vice chair? What it means to be a vice chair Uh is from a leadership at the speaker's level perspective is that it's you're someone that, you know, you're in the inner circle where he wants to be sure that you have the information that you can then take back to your committees or to your delegation. So you're um, disseminating leadership's message to correct. other members of the House. But the other thing is you're also in the room and you're discussing what the policy should be. And it's the place where you also get to talk about, I think we ought to go in a different direction. So you have a cl- more, you're closer, you have a closer finger on the pulse of the, the, the party leadership mm-hmm. and strategy. I think that's correct. And you're able to provide more direct input in a strategy. And then in the committee itself, you're able to guide legislation. Absolutely. And in the committee, as the vice chair, it's, you know, Chairman Valerio and I are, you know, the two that sort of, you know, decide sort of what gets voted on. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's something that you really think is inappropriate, mm-hmm. not in a public interest, what would you do? Um, I would suggest that we not call it up for a vote unless I knew we had the votes to kill it. Hmm. Um and that's, you know, I'm on what's called the policy committee and that we don't do budget. Mm-hmm. Like I said, there are certain budget issues I'm aware of and I follow, but we're a policy committee. And what you'll hear is sometimes, you know, somebody will bring a bill in and maybe it's a particular constituent issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it might not make great policy. I mean, there's an old adage that says, you know, bad facts don't make good law. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. So someone was aggrieved in some form or fashion by an executive agency or the court or whatever it is. And it's like, well, we're going to pass a law to fix it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the more global policy or the global consequences of passing whatever the bill might be, it's like maybe we shouldn't do that. Could have good intent but negative externalities. Right. And so, you know, then it's a question of now 
Well, we vote down a lot of bills, and that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But occasionally we get into this area where it's like, um, sometimes it can be as silly as the title of the bill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, you know, John Smith, you know, bill to, you know, stop elder abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, the actual law, it's, you know, that or the bill, the substance may be really stupid or... The title may be misleading and it, not related to the content. But then you'll have some people that, oh my God... But that's, you know, my opponent in the next election is going to, like, bring that up, that I voted, you know, against the bill that was going to, you know, get rid of elder abuse. So it's like, <laughs> really? You know, so sometimes it's a matter of it's not really good policy, but everybody feels the need to vote for it. So hmm. sometimes those are the bills that might stay in the drawer hmm. and just not get a vote. Interesting. So um, as we near the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask mm-hmm. you a final question. Mm-hmm. Ask you to reflect upon your careers mm-hmm. In law, mm-hmm. in 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 politics, mm-hmm. as a member of the Maryland House of Delegates, and in any other aspect of your life mm-hmm. where you feel you've been involved in public service, mm-hmm. and ask why is it that you've done this? Why have you chosen mm-hmm. this route? Clearly, um, there are many attorneys that can choose uh, very lucrative mm-hmm. routes. There are individuals who can choose to spend more time at home doing mm-hmm. what they want with their own free time, as opposed to going to community mm-hmm. meetings in, in the evening. Why is it that you that, that public service matters to you? Why have you chosen these routes? It really does sort of go back to my father, who at, I'm the oldest of eight. Mm-hmm. I have 22 nieces and nephews, mm-hmm. very close family, all local except my youngest brother who's in the U.S. Marines in North Carolina. But dad sort of had all of us think that what we needed to do was change our own little corner of the world and try and make it better. And so that's kind of the underlying philosophy that I've had. That's how I handle my cases. I'm a family law practitioner, which means I handle divorce and custody. I see people at their worst or when they're going through something very painful. Mm -hmm. I like to think that I help them through that difficult time and hopefully make things a little bit better for them when it's all said and done. And I think the same way about making a change in the laws. I mean, I like being on the Judiciary Committee because... What I'm doing, or the bills I'm looking at, the bills I introduce, the bills that we pass, affect the practice of law. Whether it's criminal, I I don't practice criminal, but the changes in criminal justice. But Mm -hmm. I've done a lot in the area of domestic violence, done a lot in the area of family law, um, you know, making divorce more common sense. Um, You know, I mean, it's a sad thing when a marriage breaks up, Mm -hmm. but when it happens, how do we make sure that the kids are protected that it's a fair division of assets, you know, and we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 years, I guess. So that has been Delegate Kathleen DeMay of District 15 in Montgomery County, Maryland, Vice Chair of the Judiciary Committee, who speaks of her interest in public service as something that is passed down from one generation to the next, where in her own little corner of the world, as she says, she seeks to have a impact where an impact where she is able to. She is someone who is a member of a citizen legislature, so knowing about the legal profession, she is able to, in an informed fashion, make decisions that improve her own profession for fellow attorneys and those individuals who have business with attorneys. She is able to give taxpayers a greater return on their dollar while ensuring that justice is done in the public interest in the state of Maryland. Kathleen Dumay is someone who tries in her own right to do the best she can to improve her community. And for that, 
she finds meaning. So thank you so much for joining us, Kathleen. Thank you for doing this. And this has been episode 94 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.